Throughout most of history, information was precious. It was locked up in rare scrolls and books or in the minds of scholars and artisans. Information was hard to get. And generally, the longer you'd lived or studied, the more you had. That is no longer true. Today, virtually anyone can access information anytime, anywhere, with just a few flicks of the finger. That's why a 12-year-old who knows how to Google often has more information than a person who's lived 80 years. But here's a reality we must not miss. Although information comes cheap and easy today, wisdom is as hard to get as ever. Wisdom requires much more than just transfer of facts. Real wisdom isn't merely abstract. It is the ability to apply timeless truths to daily life. Wisdom is lived truth. It exists at the intersection of ideas and actions. It must be tested and tasted. Real wisdom always takes on flesh. I think of how different it would have been to try to learn the truths that I learned from my parents in abstract just by reading them somewhere. Instead, I got to see them put into action in their lives. My parents didn't just speak about the importance of not gossiping. I observed what that meant for them. I remember many a time hearing my mom talking on the phone with a friend, and I knew she had some juicy tidbit that she could pass on in the context they were talking, and yet she held that back. I also think of my dad and going to the high school where he taught. And, you know, he didn't just share with me the idea that it was important to treat everyone with respect. I remember noticing how he would introduce me to the janitor with the same energy and passion and enthusiasm and respect that he would introduce me to the principal or anyone else on the school grounds for that matter. The wisdom of the abstract truth of treating people with respect became embodied in his practices of how he spoke to ordinary people around him. All this is why those who've lived long and well still have so much to offer that Google simply cannot provide. They help us to see not just abstract principles, but what it really looks like, what it feels like to live those principles or to violate them. They offer us more than just a recipe for cookies. They can tell us what those cookies taste like hot out of the oven and how not to burn your mouth and, and why it might be worth it after all to bake all afternoon for friends rather than just buying something at the store. In this episode of Justice in the Inner Life, we get a marvelous batch of that kind of wisdom from a friend who's given himself to work of justice and mercy for more than a half century, Bob Woodson. In many ways, Bob defies easy categories. He worked with Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez, yet often differs sharply with many who describe themselves as civil rights leaders today. He spent much of his life helping gang members and former prisoners to make a fresh start. But he also believes that strong, firm law enforcement is good for everyone. Bob is black, but is as thoughtful about rural white poverty as he is about inner city issues. He's achieved what many would describe as miracles in impoverished communities, but he also would be the first to say that he made many mistakes along the way. In all of this, from both success and struggles, Bob offers those of us who come behind him immense wisdom, timeless truths applied to daily life and service. In this episode of Justice in the Inner Life, Bob shares what it looks like 
and feels like to live well for something more than just wealth or security or prestige, and ultimately reveals whether it is worth it after all. Welcome to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Together, we'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here is your host, Jed Medefend. Well, I am here at the Woodson Center in downtown Washington, D.C. with none other than Mr. Bob Woodson. Bob, it is great to be with you. Pleased to be here. Well, Bob, let's just plunge right in. You have been a lifelong champion for justice, uh, serving vulnerable families, communities, children. Just tell us a little bit about where that journey started. Well, I, um, my passion is uh, doing the most for the least of these. That I really believe the character of a nation and, the, and is defined by how we treat the least of God's children. And uh, this is a very personal to me because I came from a very modest background, living in South Philadelphia, born during the Depression. Um, Dad worked hard and died when I was uh, nine years old, leaving my mother with fifth grade education to raise five children ages mm -hmm. nine to 18. Wow. And that was a challenge, And but... Uh, she uh, raised us with the kind of values that helped direct us to positive friends who reinforced the kind of values coming from my home. And so I guess it gave me an appreciation for why young men in urban centers join gangs, that mine was not a, uh, it was a gathering of close friends and I'm still close to them today, uh, those that have, are still around. And so it gave me an appreciation for the struggles of people under circumstances like that. I, uh, since they were a year older than me, uh, when they graduated from high school and went on to college, I found myself unaffiliated. And you don't grow up in an urban center unaffiliated. So I dropped out of high school and went into the military and uh, was tested and sent uh, to an elite kind of airborne training school where I learned airborne electronics and was then served in the uh, space program. Wow. Flying above our missiles, tracking tracking them and help expand the, 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 uh, the space program from 500 miles to 5,000 miles down to the Ascension Islands. And so um, that's kind of my early life and I took, got a GED start taking courses in the military from the University of Miami in math at a time when I could not walk on the campus because of segregation. Wow. So my 12 hours at the University of Miami at that time was an extension course because I couldn't go on the campus. So I finished my GED, got out of high school and worked uh, full time and completed college in four years and went on to graduate school and then to the civil rights movement and and then on from there to a career in social work and whatnot. So, so working in the military, working in the space program, 
and then coming to begin and then pour your life really into work of justice and mercy and urban renewal and all of those things. What what was the spark that that caused that shift of focus for you? Well, it's interesting because my undergraduate degree was in math and science. Since I've been in the space program, uh, the General Electric uh, offered me a very generous opportunity to to get a master's in mathematics and then join the space program. But in the process of getting my undergraduate degree, I worked in a juvenile jail for two years uh, from four to 12. And I would go to was that just to pay the bills or was that? Yeah, it would pay the bills okay. and pay yeah, my yeah. tuition. Yes, yes. And I worked in wow. a juvenile jail wow. and I went to school all day and worked in a jail at night. And since the boys went to went to bed at nine, he gave me three hours to study so I could do it. But I kind of had a burning bush experience in the jail without knowing what a burning bush was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was not very faith-centered. But something was stirring inside of me that I didn't understand. Um, I took the boys to an unsecured area of the jail in the evening with my partner and had a Halloween party for them. Um, I had to trust them because if the administration had known I had done that, I could have lost my job. Mm -hmm. And the boys were just perfectly disciplined. And uh, when I was gathering the two of the boys had cleaned up. When I walked back on the unit, all of them stood and spontaneously applauded me. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was the first time that I just lost it. I turned real fast and walked out because I was crying so profusely. Hmm. And, uh, and I walked on the grounds. It took me at least 20 minutes to gain control of myself. And I didn't understand what was happening uh, so, but my partner took the boys back through the institution, again, a violation, but the boys were perfect. And when I came on a unit, he asked me what happened. I said, the administration called me down. He said, you lying. <laughs> <laughs> he said, those kids got to you. And I said, yeah, they did. Um, from that day on, I said, I have to devote my life to serving kids like this. There were six of them in the course of two years that if I had the money, I would have adopted them. Hmm. I would have literally taken them into my home and raised them. Um, and so that set me on a course of serving people. So instead of getting a master's in math and science, I got a master's in social work because I loved the kids, but they weren't changing because of my love. So I, I felt that Perhaps love needs to be expressed in a more disciplined way, and that the answer to that was to take get a master's in social work, to take some of the social science and and marry it with my passion for the kids. And so from so that's how uh, I kind of got into from there working in child welfare and saw the abuses of children by the system. And then I got active as a young man in the civil rights movement, having led demonstrations in Baird Rustin's town of Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I met him and Dr. King through that, uh, mm. through that 25-year-old taking over a civil rights organization from a 40-year-old activist. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so I want to proceed with kind of the story, but I do have to just jump in with this question for a moment. I mean... If you had gone with the original plan, you major in math and, and get the master's in science and be a part of the space program or aeronautics, 
you would have probably you would be a much wealthier man today than than you are i would imagine so the question is do you, do you have any regrets on that i have none at all i remember going through a rough time uh, when i was got got my degree and i was going through a tough time going through a divorce uh, which was very painful because I had two small children. And I was offered a job uh, paying, uh, in a poverty program that would have paid me twice my salary. Instead, I knew that the poverty program was a hustle mm. from the beginning. Mm. And so I took a job paying 20% more than I made. And I told myself, if I can make a decision about income, when I desperately need money, I will never be bound by that. That's true freedom. Because I took a job at a time that, uh, that, that was less money, but it gave me the opportunity to learn how to run an organization. Hmm. Hmm. And, uh, and so I said, if I can make that decision, money will never rule the decisions that I make. And that's been true to this day. So I've never, I have been made offers I actually had a Fortune 100 company take my wife and me around on their jet and offer me a lot of money to come and use my skills to help them open pizza parlors in urban centers because of my ability to intervene with gangs. And my wife said, you're not going to take that, are you? I said, I said no. But I had fun fantasizing about what I would do with all that money. <laughs> yes. You know, but uh, so that early experience of making a decision based upon what's um, sound and, and moral for me has, has ruled my life. And so my decisions about how I use my life has more to do with what opportunities would I have to serve God's children rather than how can Bob Woodson be served. But in the process, I, I have amassed enormous wealth. True wealth. True wealth. I don't, mm. I don't have much money, <laughs> <laughs> but I've got uh, true wealth. Mm. Mm. Amen to that. <laughs> I want to be wealthy like that. Well, um, out of this work, you began the Woodson Center. This yes. was 40 years ago. So yes. tell us a little bit about the beginning of that and, and what, what the ongoing work is. Well, I, I have always sort of broken ranks from the civil rights movement. Uh, when I realized in the late 60s when Dr. King got killed, I was called back to Westchester because the town was blowing up and burning up. And uh, I was able to drive in and recruit 10 grassroots leaders and physically interpose ourselves between the rioters, the young people, the National Guard and the police. And because we were well known, we were able to prevent any deaths from occurring. I was also active in helping the Indians take over Alcatraz. <laughs> well, that's a story there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did. I, I arranged... $6,000 purchase of a diesel generator to provide power to the island. Worked with John Trudeau, Russell Means, and the leadership. Also did a lot of work with Cesar Chavez, helping to raise money to purchase a portable medical van that served the farm workers in the field. I met Cesar Chavez and had a uh, interview with him. Um, 
worked at low-income whites in Dorchester, Massachusetts, who were in a rent strike, um, black ex-gang members in Chicago. So my life has been uh, complete with working on behalf of low-income people, coming in and finding local leaders and then providing them with training. And, and so um, I've been doing this and uh, but then I decided that that a lot of the rules of the game were interfering with their ability to achieve. So then I met Peter Berger, my first conservative, when I was at the Urban League, and he invited me in when he was in 73. He was putting together a new policy track called To Empower People. And I met James Q. Wilson, Von Den Haag, and some of the luminaries in the conservative academic uh, scholarly community and for three days, I had this intense debate with them. And a few months later, Peter called me and I didn't know he was this world-renowned sociologist. And so he invited me to come to the American Enterprise Institute. And as an empiricist, I found out I'm an empiricist. <laughs> they go look up that word. And, and then I came there to the American Enterprise to write and reflect upon my practical experience and interactions with all of these various low-income leaders. And so when I was there, I was able to go back to some of the groups I had been serving as a detached researcher. And so I was able to publish two books um, that really define the work of the Woodson Center today. Mm-hmm. So you have been this been at this a long time yes and i'm sure there are tons of stories that would embody this idea but i I think of one that i I remember you sharing with me last time we were together uh of a young man who you and your wife invited to come live with you for for indefinitely and it ended up being six months and he was doing very well um and uh, he had he had been in gang life but he then was making good choices as he was living with you and then at some point along the way, he fell back into those choices. I think a good friend or a brother mm-hmm. of his, and, and so, and then ended up tangled back into gangs, and then ended up going to prison for at least three years. And and I'm sure that that story has been repeated in your life many, many times. People that you've loved and poured into, and efforts that you've believed and seen hope in, and then they seem to fall apart at some point. And I, I just want to ask you how how do you keep going when that happens? What you know, what enables you to persevere as you have over all these decades when you come up against the world that is most broken like that? Well, Wayne Lee, his name is, I can call it, because I, he was the leader of the, it was, we intervene. I, I, what, I say we. What I've done is I, I learned how to intervene in gang. And I, know, I know gang intervention. Uh, and so what I was doing is training five men an organization called the Alliance of Concerned Men in Washington. And these are ex-offenders who had the trust and confidence of the police, the courts, and kids on the streets. And I was training them about how to intervene. And and uh, so they said, and what I said, but we have no way of measuring your effectiveness because you're spread all over the city. So why don't we find one neighborhood and concentrate that trust in one neighborhood and see if we can mm-hmm. make a change? Mm-hmm. A week later, Daryl Hall, a 12-year-old boy, was killed at Benning Terrace, one of the most notoriously violent neighborhoods in the city. 
It's called Simple City. It was ruled by two warring gangs, the Avenue and the Circle. And they had, between them, 53 murders in two years in wow. that area. Wow. And so when this 12-year-old boy, he was so young, it made headline news. And it embarrassed law enforcement and everybody. And so I called the Alliance. I said, God has made the choice for you. Go up in that neighborhood and bring those warring factions to my office down, downtown. And I said, this is right. They went in and... Uh, and the police couldn't find out. They identified the leaders, and it was just 16 of them, eight on either side. And I said, well, bring them to my office. And in my earlier works, I learned that when you bring, and, and it was neutral territory on downtown Washington. Uh -huh. And so one of the alliance men worked for a car dealership, so they borrowed two 15-passenger vans. <laughs> And when the kids arrived, we had a, a meal waiting for them because kids will fight when they're drinking together, but never when they're eating together. So that became a Woodson principle. <laughs> Good one. So when the kids, and in the meantime, I got the alliance on the phone with Carl Hardrick in Hartford and Omar Jawa in Dallas because they had experience with gang intervention. And so part of the my role was to trained by bringing people with knowledge together with those who lack that knowledge. So I, we were the linchpin that brought them together. So for two hours, they shared what they should do when these kids came. So they followed the script and they asked these young people, are you happy with your life hmm. of being fearful, of being feared? And they said, no one ever asked us to be peaceful. <laughs> Long story short, we had several meetings where we talked out. Uh, first of all, we got information. They said, why was this 12-year-old killed? He's a civilian. And so the other guy said, he's not a civilian. He came riding around our neighborhoods on a bicycle with a gun shooting at my cousin who broke his leg trying to get away. So he was not a civilian. Wow. So they said, well, if we had known about it, we could have stopped him. So first of all, you put... And then when they start talking about the conflict, they couldn't remember how it started or why. Mm -hmm. And so we said to them at the second session, if we gave you a peaceful way out, would you take it? And it was a little more to it than that. Sure. But at the third session, they shook hands. And to test it, we had a press conference. We tested the peace. Wayne Lee was the, adder, uh, the, the leader of the avenue. He walked from the avenue to the circle to test it and risk his life. Wow. And they gave him the hands up signs. And it was a big press conference. The head of the housing authority attended our meetings. These young men, it's not enough to tell young people what they can't do. You need to direct them to what they can do. So that became another principle. So what we did was the housing authority hired them to clean up the very community that they tore up. So the leader of the avenue, Wayne Lee, became a foreman at 8.50 an hour. <laughs> Derek Ross of the circle became a foreman, and we mixed the crews up. So then you got this picture in the press on the front page of 16 guys in yellow rubber suits removing graffiti. 
They removed wow. more graffiti in six months than the Housing Authority crew did in three years. <laughs> and I bet people were afraid to put up more graffiti, too. Yes. Huh? <laughs> and, and so we kept them going and working. Some of them wanted to go into a landscape business. So we really um, had, got these young people um, involved in the restoration of their lives and community. And... Each of us took three or four of those kids to personally, and I took Wayne under my, under my, and we, so what happened with Wayne and some of the others, they, um, we said to them, sometimes they would grab charges or something. We said, we'll appear in court with you if you get into trouble. But none of them went back to violent things. Then some of them started to continue to deal drugs, and we told them, you have to stop that. And, but never violent, but, but anyway, we said, we have an agreement. And, and I, took, I took five of them to my home in the suburbs. We took them out to dinner. I remember having it with my, my, my son and his children and my daughter. We took five of them to a nice restaurant, showed them how to put a napkin in their lap. And they came out to my house and they said, man, I've never been in this part of D.C. before. Mm-hmm. I, he said, I bet you're all white people. I said, no, most of them are black. But I just expanded Horizons. Um, we took some of them to Alaska, uh, wow. whitewater rafting. We took them other places, but they had to earn it. But with Wayne, I was at a conference in Oregon, and I called my wife and said, something tells me I need to bring him in. Because I heard he wasn't going to work on time. So I called Wayne at 11 o'clock and said, I want you to move into my house. He said, I had to call my wife. She got real quiet. (laughs) Good thing you asked her first. Yeah. We had a 15-year-old daughter, Mm -hmm. and his bedroom was next to hers. Mm -hmm. But my wife knows that I'm discerning that I would not put my family in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And so Wayne moved in with us, and after a few days... My wife was making brownies with him at 10 o'clock at night. And he was, I was taking him to work in the morning. And Wayne did really well for a time, but then he started selling drugs and he got caught. And I said to him, "You, you made a mistake. I will go to court for you to testify, but only one time. If you do it again, I'm going to watch you sentenced. And so we went to court. I got him out of jail, went to court, and the judge released him to me. About six months later, his brother was still in the drug trade, and he was threatened. And Wayne went to his defense, and I told him, you need to terminate your relationship with your brother because he's still in this thug life, and he's going to pull you back into it. Mm. So you need to terminate that relationship and not return his calls. And Wayne did not listen to me and got caught up. And, And I told him that... He went to court, and the judge gave him four years. Mm-hmm. And he and the judge asked, is there anybody who wants to speak for him? And I wouldn't speak for him. 
And for three months, I will not answer his calls because I'm angry. And so finally, I did answer his calls and none of his friends did. Hmm. And so I continued with him during that period and he was released two years earlier. So he did three years and I continued to communicate, call, send him commissary and he came out and I can tell he was tired hmm. and he gave his heart and it's been over 15 years now and I, he's married, raising a family, working hard and um, and so that's been my journey with him. Mm. Mm. But it's a it's a journey of love and discipline. And and he knows that I went I told I've been to court seven times for kids, but only one time I said I give you one break. After that, perhaps you need to go to prison. Mm. I said to him, You need to be in prison because you don't understand it. And he felt ashamed that he should have. And so, but, I, but what keeps me going is that I'll say to these young people that if you don't give up on yourself, I won't give up on you. Hmm. And if you commit yourself to life, I will commit the rest of my life to you. So all of us around the country who are engaged in these young people, we don't do it for the life of a grant. They become a part of our family. My wife and my daughters and my sons know the names of all these young men. Hmm. Which is exactly what they need. Yes. People to know their names and be committed to them for life through the ups, the downs, the mistakes like, like you described. And Bob, how, how do you stick with it in those dark moments in the middle of that story? Because, you know, I mean, this is such a beautiful story and, and I imagine it has been told in your life many, many a time, but not always with that positive end. And when you're in the middle of it and he's, he is falling back into his brother's bad patterns and he's going to prison and, he, and you feel angry because he has, in a sense, taken your care for him and, and, uh, squandered, and squandered it. it. How, how, how do you persevere in love in those moments? He's my child. Hmm. You know, as, as, as the old gospel says, no matter what be the crime, yes, that child is mine. Hmm. Hmm. And so... What kind of father would I have been to him if I turned my back on him when he turned his back on himself? That to me is what a father does. The, the love is unearned, but I just love him. And, and that's what I appeal to. That's what kept him from doing dumb stuff. I say, why are you hurting me like this? I never see this big six foot six guy cry. When I say, why are you hurting us like this? See, they need to know that they hurt people. Hmm. And they're not used to. He slept in his first bed in my house. 
Wow. He's been sleeping on couches. His mother was in and out of jail. He stayed at cousin's house on couches all his life. You saw your commitment to these boys and see your commitment to these boys like our Heavenly Father's commitment to us. Yes. It's undeserved. <laughs> Indeed it is. And yet he perseveres. And yet he persevered. He loved me when I didn't love myself. That's what caused me to begin to love myself. Because he sees things in me that I don't see in me. And that's what all of us have to do. First and, 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 I get, and I get more out of it than they do. Mm -hmm. it's, I don't do this as a favor or an act of charity. I consider it godly responsibility. Compassion is what you dispense to someone you feel sorry for sometimes. Hmm. But godly responsibility you embrace when it's not convenient. Because we have been loved that way first. Because we have been loved that way. Hmm. So along the way, I imagine you have had many, many co-laborers, mm -hmm. some of whom are still at it, mm -hmm. but others who perhaps fell off along the way. They, they burned out just maybe pure weariness or other mm -hmm. factors. Do you have any, any sense looking back why some have been able to persevere and others not? I would say that I can count on one hand those who just burned out and left. Most of, most of my friends that I'm closest to, I have one who just died a couple of years ago. Um, he's still at it. And Carl Hardrick, he's called a mayor of the ghetto in Hartford. They're getting ready to name a uh, training center for him with a plaque, Brother Carl. <laughs> and he's still active with me. So he's, some of my, some of us, some of the kids we helped were teenagers and they're in their 50s now. <laughs> and now they're helping others. Now they're helping others, yeah. yeah. That's, that's really, and I can see the same things that we're saying to them, they're saying to other kids. Mm. It strikes me that, and, and I remember from other conversations we've had, you describing this remarkable group of friends who have been, remained as friends and allies across the miles and across the years for decades, that the fact of you having each other may have been a significant factor in that perseverance. Do you feel that's the case? Yeah, because as, when I lost my son, within two, within six months, two other grassroots leaders lost their sons. Mm -hmm. And so I was asked to come to the funeral services of them and to help hold them up. Mm-hmm. So when my son died, the first thing I did was call Pastor Freddie in San Antonio and Leon in, in uh, Los Angeles to say, man, what do I do? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how, how do you handle this? How do you handle it? I feel like taking my life. Mm -hmm. And how do I not succumb to that? And both of them said, Bob, be, be still and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Both of them said the same thing. Mm -hmm. Just be still and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And they were right, you know, and I was. And, mm -hmm. and wow. So you needed, you needed that advice, which is 
good, wise, deep advice. And you needed the friends to say that to, to you. To say that because they had lost people. Yeah, yeah. Freddie said something I'll never forget. Pastor Freddie Garcia. He said, Bob, I lost my daughter to domestic violence. And, and I laid across my bed with my kids laying on top of me and I'm crying and I'm saying, Lord, why am I being punished like this uh, when all I've tried to do is serve you? Hmm. And so he said the devil was mocking him. It's sort of just, yeah, you've done all this stuff. He said the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, Freddie, who were you when I met you? Where were you? You're not even supposed to be here. <laughs> if, wow. you, if you wow. had followed the course of your life, you should have been dead years ago. <laughs> and so Freddie said when he thought about that, he said every day that he's lived did not belong to him. Hmm. And so when he told me that, you know, it kind of made me think, you know, who, who am I to complain hmm. when hmm. the dumb stuff that I've done in my early in my life should have taken me out. I've had a gun pointed to my head. I had knives put here. And I survived it. Hmm. What a gift those friends are. I, oh. I know from my own life as well, just a, a number of dear brothers. And, and in some ways, you really only need one, but what a gift to have a few. And, and that, that uh, when we stumble, can lift us up, and when we're mourning, can grieve alongside us and share words like you, you have heard over those years. One piece of advice that I kind of gave a friend, she had the most horrific one. Her, her son, 35 years old, hanged himself on his 35th birthday next door to oh. her. Oh. Well, you can't think of anything worse. No. And um, she asked, could I come and spend time with her? And so I got on a plane, and um, she had her 16-year-old granddaughter come and stay in the house with us. And I stayed up most of the night talking to her. And so the next morning, we had breakfast. And I said to her, I said, Cordelia... Did you see the movie Saving Private Ryan? She said, yeah. I said, you know, that part when Tom Hanks said, I'm not a hero, but I have my orders. I don't understand. They're coming up, but I know that I have to save Private Ryan. And I, so he said, the rest of you, if you want to go back, I'm not going to report you. But I grabbed his helmet, and he grabbed his rifle, and he got up and he walked forward. And then others followed him. I said to her, Everybody will understand if you want to stay in your foxhole of grief. Everybody would understand. Mm -hmm. But then God will go next door and use somebody else. Mm. If you want him to go use someone else, then stay there. But if you want him to use you, then you will do what Tom Hanks did. Grab your helmet, your rifle, put away all this memorabilia, send it to his friend, and get back and go to work. Wow. She immediately said, I want God to use me. Continue. Mm. All right, then you know what you have to do. And she did. She was at work the next day. That's the word that God put on my heart to give to her. 
But anything you give to others to use, you use it yourself. Because you've needed those words yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel there are any particular habits that you have kept or practices that have been, you've been, been a part of your life over the years that, that have been a part of sustaining you in that? Yes. Cleansing myself of self-importance. I have a Mickey Mouse watch. <laughs> I love it. I have two. I have this is a dress one and another plain one. Uh-huh. And and I wear this to remind myself to keep it simple. Hmm. Every time I have an important event or something, I make sure I wear not my Apple Watch but my Mickey Mouse watch. And it is to, to remind myself that I'm just a tool, that I'm a servant, hmm. that uh, it's, it's out of God the obligation that I do this, and that it isn't done so I can be praised or honored. And so that's what is it's cleansing myself. I tell people, yield when you have the right of way. Hmm. <laughs> That's the way of Jesus. Yeah, when, yeah. I'm, when I'm... And if you do secular things, it'll remind you of spiritual things. Like when I'm late for an appointment and I'm riding down the expressway and someone wants to get in, I let them in. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't even use the excuse that I'm late. Because if you can remember to yield on small things, you'll be conditioned to yield on large things. Yes, yes. You know. A, a, a discipline of yielding in the very smallest things where we may actually have just enough willpower to do it, to let someone in front of us in the traffic line, which is oh, doggone hard. No, and when someone's insulting to mm-hmm. us. Um, well, that's where it becomes ratcheted up, right? But yeah. if we haven't done it in those smaller things, we may not be able to do it in those bigger things. Hmm. No, and I've just learned to turn around and, 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 and forgiveness. Hmm. That, that's the hardest. Hmm. But I've learned to forgive at a distance. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean, when someone's betrayed my trust and I forgive them, I don't put myself in a situation where I need to trust them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can forgive them, but you don't necessarily need to, to entrust them again. John, with the John chance F. Kennedy again. said... Um, love your enemies, but don't forget their names. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you you spoke earlier of the wellspring of all of this work in many ways being the way you have first been loved. You have experienced the love, the unconditional, forgiving, gracious, pursuing love of God. And now you seek to reflect that in the lives of young young boys as well as everyone you serve. That's that's your mm-hmm. reputation. Do you have any particular ways of seeking to, to remind yourself of that, of how you have been loved, and to dwell in that? 
No, I mean, uh, when, when, when the, some of the guys that I've served will call me for no reason, particularly Father's Day, I get deluged calls from people that guys I haven't heard from in a while. And, um, but there's, there's always things to daily remind you of the blessings. Um, and it's, Fortunately, I'm in a situation where I'll get an email from somebody or just a call or pop in and say, hey, man, just thinking about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always end our calls with I love you. you know, that's just routine throughout our whole network. And, um, and I'm always thinking of ways to bless those that I serve. And the 1776 Project, we have a chance to, to, to celebrate what others are doing, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so it's just again cleansing yourself and and being a vessel for for someone else and and it 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 sounds it sounds like more than it is <laughs> more complicated than it is huh? it's really pretty simple yeah, you're saying. yeah and and i don't do it in any sense of being martyred or anything like that or being superior it's just this is a formula that works for me i mean it's uh, it's it's when i feel most comfortable that 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 i'm blessed when somebody Who's not celebrated loves me. I'm I'm honored more by some kids than I am the president honoring me. Mm-hmm. I'm honored by someone who has been in need, who's had a need met, says how much it meant to them. That that gives me what it takes for me to go on. Mm-hmm. That that feeds whatever ego that is. <laughs> Hopefully, that's that's the. Uh... That is the God-designed part of us that delights when we bring joy to others and, yes. and, are his, and are his tool for good in their lives. Yeah, and, and that's what I try to, to hone, to try to improve upon. Mm. I just want to, to love more mm. and, and find different ways to express it. Mm. My sense is that both in, in your work personally and the, the work of the Woodson Center, that although you have addressed material poverty in very tangible ways, that you have a very strong sense that material poverty is not the root issue, that there's something much deeper at, at stake. Why is that? Well, because, again, we generalize about poverty. You know, people are, some people are just broke. <laughs> there's a difference between broke and being poor. If you're broke, you can fix that with temporary programs or assistance. But if your poverty is related to being poverty of the spirit, when there are character flaws, when you're doing, taking, you're making bad decisions, you're adapting values and that are harmful to you and others, um, programs and therapy doesn't work. You've got to be fixed. It's, it's the difference between when you need help and when you need deliverance. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yes. If I have a flat tire, you need I help. need help. Yeah. <laughs> but if I'm stuck in mud, I need deliverance. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, if I'm, some tragedy happens, but my character's intact, I need help. 
but if I'm addicted to something, I need deliverance. Mm. And so my groups understand that when deliverance is called for and when help is mm. called for. Mm. And so they're more than willing to offer deliverance, but it's knowing when one is necessary. Mm. Yes, that's a really significant distinction. And saying sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. So if it's just help, then that physical item or a practical aid can make all the difference in the world. When the fundamental need is different and we just provide financial help or other things you're that hurting, actually hurting can make it worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so then in that second category, what is most needful when deliverance is what is needed? What What is required of those who desire to make a difference? That you must establish a relationship with that person. You deliver through relationships. Relationships. Mm. Yeah. You, you enter that person's life. Mm. And... You, you offer help, uh, and often the most effective way to do that is to recruit a witness. There's nothing more powerful than a witness and as an instrument of transformation. Explain what you mean by witness. It means like Paul Riddell, one of my guys, one of my motorcycle guys who has tads all over and he drives a Harley and... He, he describes Kyle Bradford, who a guy he's heard who's in need. Is, he's an alcoholic. His wife's a belly to leave him and all. And, and uh, Paul Gradell calls him and says, hey, man, I, I want to come over and see you, man. He said, yeah, but, I, you know, I, I, I'm busy right now. And he says, look, I'm coming over anyway to see you. And so he comes over and he sits with him and, and he says, hey, man, you know, I've been through what you've been through. I know, man. but the, And he just persisted, persisted. Mm-hmm. And he thought, okay, man. And so now he's been delivered from him. But that, uh, that people who offer themselves, they, they, they go through great inconvenience to reach out to people. Mm-hmm. But they mm-hmm. witness to them that they love them and they're not going to give up on them. Mm-hmm. And, and so... But as a, some of them, one of my groups said, you got to give help before you can give hope. Hmm. So sometimes Cesar Chavez said, feed the people, then ask questions. And so what our groups do is they come and minister to the physical needs of people, but they know that's just the entry point. And so once they've got ministered to, they says, you got a problem more than just food. Let's talk about that. Hmm. Hmm. But... It's the authenticity of the helping hand and how it is presented in a way that it respects the person's dignity. And the way you do that is provide the means for people to give back for what they've received. So from the very beginning, reciprocity has to be an expectation in relationships. That's part of respecting dignity. Right. Is saying, actually, I am expecting something of you. Yes. Even if it's small, there is some reciprocity here. And and like you were saying earlier, when that is violated, saying it and saying that we've been hurt. Right. That that's so, part of that dignity. Yeah. I, I tell the story of, um, of a woman that had a women's shelter here for abused women. And every year, volunteers would collect toys to give to the children. And everybody was happy except the parent, the moms. So the executive director, in her wisdom, 
provided the means for these mothers to volunteer and earn toy vouchers. They sold, they babysat, they went shopping for the elderly and they do toy and they earned mm-hmm. toy vouchers. Mm-hmm. So when the toys were collected the second year they were placed in like a store and the moms could go in and shop for their own children. Mm-hmm. And at the Christmas party they presented the mm. toys. Different in yeah, very different. And but, they weren't the, the gifts weren't just given to the mom because it seems like some people would say, well that's the that's the solution is don't give them directly to the kids, give them to the mom. But you're saying actually that enable the moms the yeah, for them. to earn it. And then, then it really is a gift that costs them something, their labor. Yeah. I've had this, <clears throat> shared this with a, a major pastor in um, Chicago. We had piled up for his inspecting mothers a whole bunch of stuff that he collected. And I said, why are you just going to give it to him? Why don't you let him earn it? He said, never thought about that. Hmm. Hmm. He called me back and said, Bob, it changed everything. Hmm. So if if we approach needs this way, so saying some are just material, some are just needing help, and, and in those cases we provide that, but much of the time it is much deeper, and the, 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 the most fundamental thing that is needed is relationship, and that authenticity right. you're describing, and the, the reciprocity, and, and so so much of that has to be rooted in in our character, in in a willingness to persevere, like you're describing, just be present with people in their hurt. So what what does what does that require of us then? If 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 so much of the solution does have to be rooted in relationship and in in, in our presence with people, um, does does that change the equation in terms of what's required of us. I mean, I think the former, if it's just delivering goods, we just need to run a good program, be able to raise money and deliver goods. But if it has to do with relationship, that's a more fundamental question. It actually asks more of us as individuals. It it requires more sacrifice on your part. Uh, Just one other attitude about presentation initial. I had a group of uh, women, middle-class women, were leaving work. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going home and change because I'm going to mentor these girls at the high school. I said, why are you changing your clothes? Why don't you go dress the way you go to work? You should try to identify with where people want to be, not where they are. Mm-hmm. Or give them a vision of what they give could be. Give them a vision of what they could be. Yeah. Like presenting yeah. yourself. So they did. And then the girls, oh, where'd you get those earrings? And how you hook up your shoes with that? It, 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 it was a different level of interaction. Hmm. I said, just hmm. be who you are. Don't think you've got to recreate who you are in order to relate to them. Bring your authentic self to them. You know. Um, That's very significant. I think a lot of people who are middle class or, you know, relatively good situations feel awkward if you if you don't think defensively about that, I don't apologize for who I am. Hmm. And and you're saying that just being your authentic self not only is it more attractive in terms of building a real relationship, but it also casts a vision for what can be. Exactly. You know what I mean? I don't try to pretend to be something that I'm not. This is who I am. Hmm. And and what comes through when you love somebody and they love you, uh, that that's irrelevant. Hmm. Hmm. That's totally irrelevant. It never comes up what you wear and all this. It never comes up in, in an authentic relationship. But um, 
That's funny. When I go in the neighborhood sometimes and I said, didn't I see JB? He said, yeah, but he left when he saw you because that means he's dirty. He's doing stuff that he shouldn't. Mm-hmm. He doesn't Feeling want ashamed, and he wants. He yeah, doesn't want yeah. me to see it. So I, I laugh. I said, I know what that's all about. He mm-hmm. said, Yeah, Bob. He, 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 he left. He heard you were coming. He left. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Just like Adam in the garden, right? <laughs> yeah. He said uh, he didn't want you to see him. So I said, All right, mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. Tell him I asked for him. So this, so this is how standards are insinuated into a situation that you bring your authentic self in, but you're very clear to the kids. I said, I don't swear, cuss, or drink around you. Don't you cuss, swear, or drink around me. That's the rules. That's the rules. Okay, Bob. That's it. Mm-hmm. And they can respect you when you lay those out up front because they know you love them. Exactly. So, Bob, I I recall, and I don't know for sure if I have the right recollection, but I remember being at an event a decade ago or so, and you expressing this thought, saying, in order to change someone, you must love them, and they must know that you do. It's true. And I thought that was one of the most profound things and significant things that's lingered with me ever since. How How did you come to feel the truth of that? It was incremental. I mean, I just, when being at the jail and interacting with, uh, with the kids and uh, I had a boy named Sidney. Sidney was one of my favorites. I would have adopted him in a heartbeat. And Sidney got out of jail, did his time, and he got three buses to come up and spend the day with me at the jail on a Saturday just to walk around and hang out with me. And I knew he took three buses to get there. Wow. wow. <laughs> and so we just kind of hung out and asked him. And then a month later, he got sentenced back there. I said, Sidney, what are you doing back here? He said, Mr. Woods, I live at Kamak and Diamond Street. He said, I tried to stay in the house, but the gangs knocked on the Kamak and Diamond Street, knocked on my door. I had to come back. But what I do is when we're stretched out, Walking two blocks, I make sure I'm always at the end. Because whatever foolishness is going to happen, it's going to happen up here. So, sure enough, there was a gang death, and they swept everybody. But they knew he was at the end and wasn't involved, so they gave him three months. Hmm. So he said, that's how I stay in this stuff. He said, what am I supposed to do? I live at Kamak and Diamond, Mr. Woodson. So that's what hurt my heart. I said, but if you lived on 57th Street where I live, you wouldn't be in here. But I didn't have any. I was living with some relatives in a single room. But if he needed just to, to, that hurt my heart that I couldn't take him in. Because I knew that he was just a victim of circumstance. He didn't need an intervention. He didn't need to be delivered. Uh-huh. He just needed help. He just needed help. help in the form of a different location. That's all he needed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Bob, you have a new book coming. You're working on it now. Yeah. T- tell us, give us a little preview what, what that's going to be. It, the title is Lessons from the Least of These. What I've tried to do in this book is to 
take all of the experiences I've had over the years and they're all expressed into 10 principles that, and each principle is a chapter. And then each chapter has examples of grassroots groups whose actions exemplify those principles. So it's very action oriented, it's very specific. It advises anybody who wants to intervene in low income, high crime, drug infested neighborhood. It, it helps you to understand how to intervene, the do's and don'ts of intervention. So the first thing you do, according to chapter one, is never come in when the assumption that nothing is there before you came. Mm. That is good. I've had people come in want to start charter schools and all, and they take years fumbling around, stumbling around, without first of all finding where, where are their centers of moral excellence that upon which you can build. First find, and that's the most difficult thing. People see, uh, you know, empty homes and broken sidewalks, and they assume that that defines the whole neighborhood. Mm. And, and so you're discouraged from going and looking for strengths. So first thing is to go in and find out uh, who's there. And then I describe what that capacity, what they look like. What are healing agents? Mm. Mm. What to look for when what you're to looking look for, for these people. Yeah. 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 Healing yeah. agents are antibodies. They take on the same characteristics. So you need to go in and look at those healing agents. And once you found two, through them you can find ten. Peers always find... Mm. They know each other. Know each other. Yeah, yeah. So if you got two, you can get ten and then thirty. And then I talk about their characteristics. They share the same zip code as those experiencing the problem. Um, there are two types. There's like I go from Joseph, those who are in the poverty but not of it. They're raising children that are not dropping out of school or in jail on drugs. Or they have failed that test, but through God's grace have become redeemed. And and so they they are powerful witnesses. So the two types of Josephs you should look for. Those that did fall, but through God's grace were redeemed, and those that never fell, like Joseph in, in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it talks about their characteristics. They tend to be transparent. Mm. They don't conceal who they are. And then, so we go into well, the principles of how to help without injuring with the helping hand. So they take you into, it's kind of a step-by-step, -step. it's a way of educating people about the capacity, do capacity studies. I just spoke to a group of conservatives, and I said, all they do is failure studies like the left does. And, and what's wrong with the community, yeah. rather than what's right here, and how can we build on that? Yeah, they're pathologists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I'm not condemning pathology, but you don't learn... What builds true health right. just by studying what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to that book, sincerely. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of other people will be, too. And also, what I'm working on, another book dealing with the um, 
examples of radical grace in action. Hmm. Radical grace. I'm going to be talking about a Mark Levine, the man who was Robert Smalls, who was born a slave, eventually became a successful businessman and purchased a plantation on which he was a slave and took in the children of the slave owners. The, the, the biological children of the slaveholders. Wow. He played with them as children. Wow. Like you said, that's, that is radical grace. And when Dr. King, home was bombed in Montgomery. Hmm. And he got surrounded by armed blacks and he, put, he, he pledged peace. Hmm. That's radical grace in mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. But people who suffered directly did not respond with anger and retaliation. And yet people today are angrier than they are, and they want to respond with retaliation and anger. I, I mean, I, that doesn't, that doesn't con- hmm. compute with me. Hmm. Well, it's, I think we all need a deep, deep drink of radical grace, mm-hmm. every one of us from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Bob, if you... If you could go back 60 years now, talk with young Bob early on this journey, what, what advice would you give him? Nothing very profound, just learn to forgive earlier. Hmm. Hmm. I could have avoided a lot of problems and pitfalls if I knew what it was to forgive and let go. I held on to things that happened to me too long and and let it interfere with my forward movement. I could have done a lot more, a lot better earlier if I had just let go. Hmm. And choosing to forgive. Hmm? Choosing to forgive. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You know, just if 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 I knew the power of forgiveness. Just the power of it. But it takes time. It takes age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing when someone can learn learn a, a lesson like that early in life. Mm-hmm. Probably many of us, it, uh, those things come with time. <laughs> someone, <laughs> but I'm going to be sad. said that someone describes bitterness and anger Resentment of someone is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> it's really true. Really, really is true. Mm. Mm. And, and that's what 1619 is doing, fueling anger on the part of, of inner city blacks <clears throat> against unknown forces that are supposed to be in control of their lives. That's, that's the worst thing in the world. To, to say to people that they are exempt from any responsibility for the control of their lives. It's a very disempowering message for sure. It's destructive. It's lethal. You know, mm-hmm. when, when someone is doing something to destroy themselves and you're telling them it's not your fault. They, they are destroying the people they say they're trying to help. Hmm. 
and misguided action can be as detrimental as one motivated by malice. Hmm. Yeah, maybe even more so because yeah. there's uh, no defenses up. No, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Letters from Prison said the same thing. He says the most difficult phenomena to confront is not malice, it's folly. Because malice you can confront with violence. <clears throat> There's no defense against folly. Can't defend against it. And someone says, I'm, I'm just doing this to you because I, I want to help you. You say, but your, your help is disabling me. But I, but I love you and I'm just trying to help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, Bob, one of your sons served in the Bush administration. I, I didn't know him personally, but uh, I, I know he was a very respected man, chief of staff at, at Housing and Urban Development. And uh, as, as you alluded to earlier, he died in a car accident. And um, I know President Bush called you from Air Force One just to comfort and encourage in that time. Mm-hmm. You, you shared with me in the past something that happened at his funeral with gang members that you had been working with. Would you yeah, tell us that I, story? Uh, yeah, I, we had a nice memorial service. About a thousand people attended. Ari Fleischer. Uh, uh, we had about five members of the Senate, Congress, all. Josh Bolton gave the, the greetings from the White House. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would came to my time, but maybe about 16 to 17 members of the Benning Terrace guys all came in the front of the church and surrounded my family. And they all had, as I got up to speak, they all had smiles on their faces. Hmm. And their smiles communicated to me that you buried one son, but you have 18 others. And we need you. That was the message I got from them. They were just smiling. Hmm. And as I stood up and and in my grief uh, I saw their eyes staring at me and saying you have been to funerals with us to counsel us not to go back are you going to be willing to take the test you have ministered to us mm. wow because I whenever there's one of them whenever one of them loses a friend you got to stop them from thinking of retaliating. So you have to be at the funeral. And when they leave the coffin, you got to be there with a big hug. Mm. And you had been at a lot of those funerals. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here you were at the funeral of your own son. And yet these hardcore gang members were saying to you, you've got, you've lost one, but you have 18, 18 others. That is true wealth, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it really is, and that's a return on investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, well, it's it's full circle. Yeah. That's 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 the that's the full circle of love. Hmm. 
And we don't always see that this side of heaven, but when you get the glimpses of it, you know, ah, that is worth it. Yeah, I would not have, no corporate job or sweetheart salary could replace that. No, couldn't replace it. Well, thank you, Bob. Really, uh, really value this conversation, this time together immensely. Well, good. I, I enjoyed sharing it. You know. Anytime we get a chance to talk about my guys. Man. What a conversation, rich in true wisdom. Wisdom that I hope that I and all of us can apply throughout our lifetimes as well. And you know, what I value most of all is that Bob helps me to know and to feel that this kind of life is the best life. The best life is to live for Christ and for others, for a vision larger than self. Amidst all the struggles and travails of service, of ministry, it is worth it. When you come to the end, you will have no regrets. I'll never forget that image of Bob at the funeral of his dear son. And it's hard, it's hard to imagine anything more sorrowful than that. And yet there with Bob in his grief were all those former gang members that he poured into standing beside him, just as Bob had been with them in their struggles. And they encouraged him and reminded him that although he lost one precious son, he had many more sons who loved him and respected him and also who needed him to persevere in his work. As Bob said early in the interview, that is real success in life. That is true wealth. If you would like to get to know Bob better, I would definitely recommend his new book, Lessons from the Least of These. You can get that online just about anywhere. And whatever your sphere of service, my prayer for you is that you will live, just that I also will live with wisdom, applying timeless truths to daily life. And most of all in this, that we will live every day for what is most good and true and precious, real success and true wealth. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Menefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit us online at kfo.org.